0: listening to
1: Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. Uh, today, I am really excited to have Ido Naeem with us. Um, he's currently vice president of LiveOps at Triple Dot, but uh, he's got an amazing kind of heritage in, in games and stuff. But uh, Ido, before we dive into things, uh, I always kind of like to ask you know, how did you get into games? Like, how how did you get where you are today? Uh, What's your story?
0: Cool, so Tom, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. So um, my story goes back to about 2014, uh, so seven years ago almost, um, where uh, a friend of mine actually told me I should try an interview uh, in a company called Playtica. Uh, Back in the day, I had no idea about uh, gaming nor about even uh, gambling, which what which is basically what we considered play ticket to be back in the day. Um, and as you know, like gambling is not even legal in Israel. It's not like we really understand what slot machines are. Yeah. So I went to this interview. I was quite pessimistic, but the interaction was quite cool. Um, and funny enough, uh, I used to be in the intelligence force in the Israeli army, and my interview Uh, was also there and we ended up having some things in common and the conversation was very good and I ended up not getting the job despite of that Um, but the interview process I think really taught me a lot about the industry and made me very curious about it and in some extent I really think that it also shaped how I recruit today because it really made me kind of engaged with gaming and I believe that 60 or 70% of the people who actually walk in gaming are not gamers. Maybe you you tell me mm-hmm. what do you think the stat is. Um, but yeah, that's ultimately what uh, started it. So I didn't get a job. Two months after I'm getting a call, we actually have another job that could be even more interesting for you. Mm. And uh, I took it and this is where it started.
1: That's awesome. And then... So what's your
0: approach? What do you think? <laughs> How many of the gaming people are actually gamers?
1: You know... I guess the the real question is, you know, what do you consider a gamer? Um, because I, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of the people that I do talk to tend to play games like here and there, you know, there are some like, oh, yeah, I don't really play games outside of work or whatnot. But I feel like those people tend to be uh, folks that have like a young family and just don't have time to do so. Um, but uh, no, I mean, a lot of people that I talk to do tend to love games, although I, I have noticed that there's a large – propensity of people where you know they're working on like a casual puzzle game but then when they get home they're like uh you know heavy into like battle royales or vice versa or whatnot um so they might not necessarily be working on a game that they completely love um but uh, many of them do seem to play it to the point at least on the game design side of things where you know i kind of become an engaged user where i learn to love the game kind of a thing yeah,
0: makes sense. I think that my, my time in voodoo kind of proved me that everyone is really everybody could be gamers in a way. Um, and yeah, wh- whatever we considered as gaming seven years ago is not whatever we consider gaming today.
1: Yeah, I mean, my my uh, idea of a gamer is you know like a fifteen year old uh, guy that's sitting on his computer all the time. Um, But I think it's kind of extended since then. And, you know, it's like anyone could pick up a smartphone and engage in a game. You know, even my grandma could play (laughs) solitaire on her phone or something like that. Um, And so I think it's definitely garnered out from there. But, you know, would you consider her a gamer? I don't know. I think everyone has a propensity to enjoy games, though. So you did a lot of stuff at Platika, including retention. Yeah. We are in the Mastering Retention podcast. So if you have, you know, the secret to retention, we would love to know it. Um, <laughs> and then you went on to Voodoo, right? Yeah. So We're th- five
0: years in Playtica and then a year and a half in Voodoo.
1: Yeah. Um, did you notice, like, so Playtica, I feel like is very, like, data-driven, focused on all the super specific, you know, little things and testing and iterating until you, you know, absolutely get the best possible thing. And then Voodoo, on the other hand, at least from my experience and what I've seen, seems to be like fast, 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 like move, move super fast. Um, you know, what was it like going between those two companies? Like, did you learn a lot of things? You know, are there, you know, some things where maybe Playtika takes too much time and, and Voodoo goes too fast on
0: yeah, that's actually a very interesting question. Um, so let's maybe break it down to several levels because it's actually a very complex question. I think that, uh, you know, I, I mentioned it before, I came from the intelligence force and I think that Playtica in a lot of areas actually very much resembles whatever walk that is being done there. So it's ultimately connecting between people, connecting with technology and with a lot of data. And, At the end of the day, Playtica perfected its live operations and product release strategy, um, and Voodoo perfected new game release strategy. And I think that these are very different gaming companies at the end of the day. Voodoo could only strive and succeed if there are enough games out there. Mm-hmm. Playtica runs with almost the exact same portfolio as it did have, let's say, three, four years ago, but yep. it's still growing even more than Wood does. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the day, I, I think that the pace is very similar. The pace that we use to run LiveOps activities in Playtica, I believe, is uncomparable, incomparable to anything else in the industry. Whereas releasing a game in Voodoo, sometimes in a month worth of development, testing, experimentation, is something that you don't really see elsewhere. Well. So these are like two extremes uh, that even now, like in Triple Dot, I'm trying to take the most, the most of the world.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. Um, I, I do have a question. So you were you were a VP of Game Ops. I mean, the closest thing that I can think of a game ops is live ops, but you know, what exactly did that mean within the context of Voodoo? Yes.
0: Another very good question. Uh, it, it seems like we, we thought about the questions in advance together, but it's really not the case. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when I first came to Voodoo, actually, um, I, I was recruited under the assumption that I'm going to do live ops. And then I arrived and I said, hey, guys, like, Let's, let's be fair to the profession and the terminology, but what I'm supposed to be doing here is not, not live ops because there's nothing live about what we do. Um, and it's mostly in the world of, of testing. So ultimately when I arrived at the company, we, we identified that there's a gap in uh, how we um, release games versus what is the actual potential that we believe that these games could have. So the premise was, we can actually make much more money out of these games, and we only need to figure out how. Um, you know, in our gaming world, sometimes this assumption translates directly into live ops. And I think that the most important messaging, maybe out of this exercise that we had there, and we're here also to, to help other people to try to figure it out, is really to understand what is the uh, what is the purpose of what we're doing and where is the actual problem Uh, and i'll try to explain liveops could not solve problems liveops could boost something that exists and work well good liveops could not exist without having a very good product yeah and ultimately you know liveops has uh, in in here when i first arrived at triple dot i ended up explaining to every person how I see LiveOps, because we had very different approaches about what it is, because today it's it's a lot of like name dropping around it. Some people see it as a very narrow thing, some people see it as a (laughs) very wide thing. Um, I was educated in Playtica, and in my approach, LiveOps is really uh, a sub directive of monetization. Well, monetization is really the entire scope of how do we look at players? How do we monetize players? How do we communicate with them? um and 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 which kind of events we have in the game uh to support all of that and when i arrived to voodoo as i described these things were not really there because in hyper casual games you don't really know your players uh you have very short life cycle it's not like the events are, are significant enough so during this analysis we really understood that what we're missing is to try to really do proper performance optimization for the game. So it's really finding the comfort zone that I like to describe it as what is the perfect balance between monetization and retention? Meaning how in the Voodoo perspective, how many ads can I show while I maximize retention to drive the highest possible LTV or output. Yep. And ultimately that's the craft of, of game ops. So maybe we we misuse a title also there but at the end of the day we we figured that this is the most appropriate uh, terminology so ultimately that's basically what we've done and I think that the amazing part about Voodoo is that it's probably one of the few companies in the world that you can actually get conclusive A-B test within a day or two or get a very good indication because the volumes are so intense and therefore a lot of this work ultimately concentrated into Let's do ten variants, which is something that in other company you'd never take the risk of doing. But yeah. in Voodoo, there's no time, like you mentioned, and everything runs so fast, and you're <laughs> so dependent on how much the game is performing that at the end of the day, this is the only day, the only way to really make it.
1: I like that a lot. So I'm gonna ask you a question that I've been noodling on for a while, um, and and I'm gonna uh, pitch you on it. So, do you think that live ops can be done in hyper-casual games or should be done. So, you know, normally when I think of live ops, more than anything, I'm thinking of like time-limited events and like limited time offers, you know, maybe, you know, some stuff around like push notifications or messages or whatnot, but the core of it is really like the seasonal events and stuff, right? Um, And, you know, part of me kind of says, well, not really because most of those time-limited events are built around the idea of like, well, I do X, Y, Z, and then I'm going to get this big prize at the end. It's something that I actually want. But I feel like most of those hyper-casual games don't really have stuff for me to want to spend more time to do those. Um, But on the flip side, here's an idea I've been noodling on. So I was talking to a a hyper-casual publisher um they've got a game that's like uh, you can like flip a bottle so you know you tap on the screen the bottle flips you can tap it again to like go a little bit higher and you kind of try to transverse across the room um so i was like well okay so that's a cool game if i'm thinking about live ops really it's it's about how can i get players to engage in the game a little bit more than they already do and hopefully, while they're engaging, they'll have some opportunity to do a few more monetization type activities, which in hyper casual is watching a few more ads between levels or whatnot. So I kind of said, well, you know, what if we created a event where once a week on the weekends or, you know, whatever day you get the best engagement or whatnot, um, it's a time limited event. And instead of flipping a bottle, I can flip some object and, you know, maybe it's a vacuum cleaner this week and I can control the speed that it goes up and the speed that it goes over and maybe a couple of little things so that, you know, it's that same idea of like, I'm, I'm flipping a bottle, but now I'm flipping a vacuum cleaner, but it feels a little bit different. So same mechanic, more the same, but different, which, you know, I feel like, you know, evolves in live ops. And so, you know, could I get players to maybe play a few more levels because now they have to master flipping a vacuum cleaner or flipping a bowling ball or, a peanut butter. can. I don't know what it's going to be, you know? Uh, you know, it could be anything, but it's kind of fun. It's interesting. It's new objects. And, you know, maybe instead of their, you know, cohort that watched 400 ads play at all 400 levels, maybe now they'll play 800 or something and you can kind of maximize the overall LTV. Um, does like, is that the right way to think about live ops and hyper casual, or am I just completely crazy? And it's probably like a terrible idea altogether.
0: I, I think that I think that you're right in a way, but maybe let's take two steps backward and, and really talk about what is LiveOps. And, and again, I don't think that any of us is, is in the right spot to really make this distinction. But to me, a lot of the things that, for example, you just described might not necessarily count as LiveOps if you're really taking the, um, the, the politica approach, let's call it, but say that it's basically a product feature that unlocks content every week. And nothing is really changing there. It's basically a skin that is changing. And then, what if I told you that uh, you could take the exact same mechanic and all of a sudden add additional layers to it, meaning make it, make it not just a skin change, but a game mode? Uh, well, all of a sudden you deal with something different. And all of a sudden, players also have the urge and, and the fear of missing out that they need to play it now because it's an ability to really challenge their capabilities or their skill or what they were used to because maybe just flipping something that is not a bottle is not interesting enough <laughs> um and i think that in in the voodoo world actually we experimented a lot with uh with stores and how do we play with with skins and stuff like this at the end of the day i don't think that this is where the gold is i think that if you're looking at the live ops world it's really about building a very holistic experience so for example let's say that we did that then there's also a communication layer to all of this, meaning how do I make people aware of the fact that the content is there? And once they got into the game, how do I maximize the time that they spend? Because let's assume that they are playing on a different skin, it's the same. Will it increase their playtime? Not sure. Let's <laughs> say that all of a sudden we make it a game mode how much it actually going to distract them from the regular game mode and what would happen to their consecutive day retention, let's say, Mm. following this kind of experience. So uh, like in this respect, maybe it's very important to mention that keeping this constant tension between exclusive offerings versus the core gameplay is so important because players see it. And in a way, once you open the appetite, it's kind of... uh, it's a hard wall process otherwise, because then players keep on asking for it. Yep. And it's something that I saw uh, in WSOP with the amount of content the content that we had there in Playtica. And it's something that I'm seeing now even in triple dot in, in games like Widoku that basically have a journey kind of experience that is changing every week and very much compels to how you described it. Um, although it's not a hyper casual product. Um, so. This is like the most basic layer, but then um, there are layers of complexity that could be uh, keep on added into it, depending on the kind of monetization that you have. So we talked about longer session length that it might translate into seeing more ads, but also evidently you're losing on your CPM when that happens. So maybe the outcome is not that great, again, combined yeah. with the retention effect that we talked about. But then on the inner purchases world, all of a sudden it could become much more interesting because then you can even play with it much more because it's ultimately a world of supply and demand. And if you manage to really create this extra appetite for a limited time event that now everybody wants to play, they might be even willing to spend much more in order to do so. And then all of a sudden LiveOps contributes in a direct way to revenue generation and not in in, indirect way. So I think that it, it very much goes into the definition of what do we call live ops so yes we can like let's say flatten the definition and say this is how we do live ops for hyper casual and maybe it's valid you know but at the end of the day i don't see it as a as like a massive offering per se instead of just saying it's a small product adjustment just just makes it a bit more interesting
1: yeah that's interesting so then you know continuing on from hyper casual you know i i've seen live ops in your typical like in-app purchase driven games all of your per- playtika type games and such um really well done now you're at triple dot and you don't have to answer we can pick a new game if you don't but you know at triple dot i feel like most of their revenue is ad-based revenue right um probably similar to like a you know, some of those puzzle games where they get you to watch an ad, you know, in front of each one to get a power up or whatnot. A lot of their revenue comes from, you know, more more levels equals more ad views beforehand, or um, you know, watch an ad again to get the plus five moves or whatnot. Um, you know, how does live ops translate into a ad-based game, you know, different from, you know, kind of that heavily in-app purchased game, or really is the live ops all about that you know bringing that in-app purchase aspect into the ad-based games and it's not really going to affect like the ad revenue yeah
0: um so it's a very interesting topic you know um so maybe we'll split the answer into two parts uh one part goes to what we call our evergreen games so ultimately some of our games really created the niche let's say game like wudoku is a very Mm -hmm. game. I'm not sure if you've played it, but very addictive.
1: A little bit, yeah, I know it was it's a brilliant game. <laughs> exactly. So uh, it's
0: not like I'm a Sudoku player in any way, but and not I'm a Tetris player, but it works. And a lot of the DNA of of triple dot is really going into the s- most minor details and really perform the small tweaks to to get this high retention rates that at the end of the day would translate into high CPMs and high LTPs. And I think that what triple dot changed in the market is really the ability to to fine tune the product and also fine tune the ad monetization to really create products uh, like Wudoku that are fully monetizing of of ads uh, in an extent that is comparable to an IAP based game, which is amazing. And now to answer the question, for these games, ultimately we're looking in a, into a live ops model that is much more similar to what we described before, okay? So uh, end of last year, we started introducing journeys into Udoku before my time, so I'm not taking any credit on it. And that was the kind of approach of, this is live ops in, in a game like this. And this is also what kind of created the appetite of even considering we should do live ops. And ultimately, um, Over there, the the level of sophistication keeps on evolving, let's say six months after it was actually released to the entire population. And at the end of the day, we we really do small optimizations. And what what we have in mind is how do we extend the session length? How do we extend engagement, right? Because we saw how it translates into uh, impressions and how it translates into extra revenue. Um, And and this is an approach that is very much correct for these games, while the company obviously has a lot of aspirations of growth. And at the end of the day, now we are working on five new games that are going to be released in the next six months or so. Um, And some of them will be more of a combination between uh, ad revenue and IAPs. Some of them will be IAPs oriented, some of them will be ad oriented only. Uh, But really the vision of the company, and this is one of the things that drew me here, is that it's really, uh, we don't have an expertise in one topic, we have an expertise in optimizing. And it's really building this kind of optimization live ops idea that in a way very much compels to the game ops uh, kind of approach that we discussed before uh, that uh, leads us into really creating products and creating this infrastructure from a much more awakened or aware perspective of how we should address games. Uh, And I think that history taught us that they managed to prove that it's possible to be very profitable out of just doing ads and not (laughs) going to hyper-casual and pay like casual CPIs. And uh, I think that the, the next phase will be even taking it to the next level and do the same kind of proof on on uh, on IAP games. That's awesome. So that's I all I can I'm, say. I'm, now. Exci- I'm
1: excited to see what, what comes. We'll, we'll, we'll have to bring you back maybe in like 12 months or so and <laughs> see how the game launches went. I'll
0: tell, tell you all about the fails. and. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, the fa- yeah. failures are the best. I feel like I learn more from my failures than I do from my successes because mostly I'm like, well, why did that work? I don't really know, but <laughs> it works. Exactly. Um,
0: You know, just now, I just spoke with with my boss, Ayal, who's our chief product officer, and we talked about one of the products we're currently experimenting with, and the fact that we actually managed to double the retention, the day one retention in a month. So without going into numbers, I think that this is something that is just interesting because we just don't give up. And it could be that it would never reach, you know, maybe we doubled from five to 10%, but... At the end of the day, um, uh, like the numbers are promising and we see where it progresses to, and we never give up. And I'm here just a month and a half, but it's it's really embedded and, and rooted into, into people here. And I think that this this is the approach that ultimately wins it for, for Triple Dot specifically. Um, and uh, and if not, it's also okay to say, you know what, it didn't work. It's not like all of the products that we, we worked on uh, are super amazing.
1: Yeah. No. So shifting gears a little bit. Um, so, you know, I don't know if you want to put on your, maybe plateek ahead of, of when you're like heavily optimizing and stuff. Um, I, I always kind of struggle and I'm curious what your take is on, you know, obviously data is super helpful and can paint a story. Um, at the same time, it's very easy to pull the wrong data or to tell the wrong story from you know, the data, or, you know, maybe if you don't clean it appropriately, you can get very interesting things out of it. Um, But what's your approach to kind of utilizing data on the one hand? And and do you do any sort of like talking to players or surveys or customer Like what level of that more kind of qualitative type stuff do you use? And how do you tie that from a data perspective, especially as I often find they kind of conflict in what they're saying?
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, so here's the thing, I think that with the complexity of the product also comes the, the complexity of understanding the product. And obviously, we all start designing products with some assumptions in mind of saying, oh, this is an amazing idea. So let's, let's go back to the Wudoku example. It's a game that didn't exist before, we created the mechanic. And you can think that it's an amazing idea, but it doesn't mean that from day one, it actually works. And does it mean that you can necessarily talk to your players and understand what they think about it? Not Mm -hmm. necessarily, (laughs) but um, so maybe let's talk about several examples. Um, In the Playtica concept, like we mentioned it before, uh, a lot of the holistic monetization approach is also talking with players through different channels. So it's the customer support approach, the VIP account management approach, which is basically customer support for highly engaged players with, with some additional benefits. And uh, a lot of looking at, at the uh, reviews and stuff like this that you know that everybody does. But also some approaches that uh, were at the time much more innovative. I believe that today much more companies actually utilize them, which is doing um, like communities, but not only communities that are generic, but also communities for engaged players or some kind of beta groups that ultimately allow you to understand that your product while development is actually headed into the right path. And I think that this is something that is very important when you develop a product, but also in Playtica, we talked about this operational approach and and refinement. Um, And a lot of that ultimately involved talking to players sometimes even physically. And, you know, I mentioned in the beginning that us Israelis, we don't really understand slot machines or casinos because it's not something that we, we, are, we were exposed to or still yeah. are. But when you meet these American players that play the casino and you hear how they see things, it definitely puts things in different color. Uh, and, and that's true for the product in the same way that it's true for um, any kind of communication channel and Sometimes you can legitimately ask them the questions of how do you enter the game? Do you press push notification? Do you read your emails? Uh, Which times of the days you're actually playing? This is kind of interaction that you can also put a survey in the game and uh, give them like a coin reward for whatever you want. And hopefully you might get some results, (laughs) but at the end of the day, it's not going to give you the most complete or the most coherent or the most honest necessarily experience. And um, I happen to experience with a lot of different kind of approaches of how to communicate with players. And I found that ultimately there's no replacement or alternative for actually talking to these people, <laughs> especially with those that are, let's say uh, the high rollers in the casino, or the most engaged players elsewhere. And I think that these people oftentimes understand the game much better than the VP product who is actually working on the game. And uh, I would encourage every individual to to do that. And I think that this is one of the most learning experiences that I had in my life, that I had the opportunity to meet real VIPs of a game and people who spent large amount of money uh, in a game and and the commitment level is beyond doubt there. Um in other places it becomes harder though. So if you take it to the extreme opposite, well, in voodoo, you barely know who your players are. Right? Not only that you have so many of them, okay. but you barely know who they are. And then all of a sudden you can use some, you can just use the fact that there are masses to either approve or deny any theory that you might have. So maybe over there, the approach will be much more scientific in terms of like testing and really trying different approaches. But at the end of the day, sometimes you would still do this A-B test that you would never be able to prove with data and you'll have to ask them, did you notice it? Yes or no? And do you like it? Yes or no? So I think that like at the end of the day, everything is viable. You need to do everything either as a product manager, either as someone who deals with retention. And there's a very important relationship here, um, which is basically the relationship between the marketing people, the retention or monetization people, customer support, and the product people. And I think that oftentimes, these kind of relationships are neglected in businesses or, or not nurtured enough, because you have the marketing people pushing people in, you have the monetization people really dealing with them, and you have the product people that are either responding to all of this or building the future products. And um, it's very easy to be highly influenced by the data that you see on marketing or if you're just looking at retention, if you're looking at the quality of campaigns and all of a sudden you have an issue like iOS 14 that messes up everything for you. Um, and, And then you need to think of other approaches of how can you approve or deny a specific theory. And I think that it's very important to sometimes have this group discussion to just try to think each one in its own realm what could be done in order to see if we're on the right path yes
1: or no yeah do you like to just kind of have like a brainstorming where it's like okay now that we've identified a problem in our game, let's list every possible idea that we could fix it and then kind of rank them maybe in different categories of like technical complexity, how much time it's going to take, the chance that it's actually going to fix it, and then figure out, you know, okay, based on this, this is the easiest one with the highest likelihood, maybe we try that first to see if it actually fixes the problem type of a thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I can tell you about something that happened for us uh, in Voodoo back in, in April um one of the new games that we launched didn't really go as well as we planned and it was one of the first games that the game ops team actually started working on right after launch meaning doing a lot of AB tests during launch which is a period where you have millions of installs coming in and it could become much harder to like validate tests Mm -hmm. Uh, but also it it all comes in parallel with user acquisition growth and all of that and ultimately Um, there were a lot of things happening in the UA front, a lot of things happening on our front and still the game is not stable so you don't have any kind of baseline that you can go back to. And this is a point where you have to put all of the people in one room and say, this is the problems that we have, where do you think it could be originating from and which kind of tools do we have to eliminate each one of them? So for example, if we want to look at the quality of the test, And we know that we have user acquisition problems. Maybe we just need to default these tests to organic traffic because that's the only reliable source that is not volatile enough to ruin what we see in the tests. And this kind of discussion again can only happen when you have all of these people sitting in a room and say, I'm on the UA side and I can be accountable to whatever is happening on my end, enough to tell you that this source might be problematic this source is actually out of control. This source is great. Um, but when it all comes together, it's very hard to distinguish. And I think that this is really well, well, the true greatness of, of a product team uh, comes to mind. Well, they, they really take control over it. And uh, I think that ultimately, this is the point where, where you can resolve
1: things. Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay. so. I was thinking of a scenario. So I've been kind of helping a studio. They were mostly like a uh, PC, console, really all-star team. Um, but they decided to start a mobile studio together. Um, so things are a little bit different over here. Um, and and they've made a game. Uh, I'm going to call it an Archero clone. I don't know that it's completely there, but it's probably close enough. Another that, one of these. Uh, another one of these, right? Um, and it's actually a pretty fun game. Like I have played it. Um, but they, you know, are struggling to get past like 30% day one retention. And I think to really scale this thing, they need to get up to 40. Um, now there are quite a few features and things that are still missing and lots of, and so you could make a case for, um, well, yeah, of course we don't have good retention because we haven't built all the things yet. And so like, let's build them, but I'm you know, trying to push those, like, well, you know, you could also spend another six months of your runway building these things, and the game is still never going to cross that threshold. So how do you balance that? But anyways, I've been trying to, like, think through this idea of how do we truly diagnose, like, what the problems with the game are, or like, what's causing that retention drop off. And, and I'm curious if you have any, like, tips or tricks, like, you know, one thing, like, yeah, we could talk to the players that came back, you know, (laughs) the next day, but I feel like we could learn more if we could talk to the players who didn't come back and, you know, why didn't they come back? You know, was the game just not fun? Um, Yeah. You know, we, we looked at the analytics and, you know, you can see where the drop-offs, but there's nothing really like particularly standing out that they haven't already addressed. Um, And so I'm just kind of curious, like, how would you take, you know, this kind of approach, like, would you do something where it's like, let's, you know, after players play one level, let's like, give them a survey optional, let them put their email in. If I noticed that that player didn't come back the next day, I like send them an email, and like, you know, can we hop on a zoom? I just want to like, talk to you about your experiences. You know, what, what would your approach be? Would you try to tie it in? Or would you focus more on the data? Yeah, uh,
0: I think it's a very interesting example. Um, let's see. Uh, I really don't think that there's necessarily like a guidebook that we can give and say these are the actions <laughs> to follow because at the end of the day each game is different. Yeah, and uh, you know we also made a statement before of uh, I'll actually say it in a different way. You know when when I joined Triple Dot, uh, then one of the first questions that I got was how much do you think live ops could help with retention in percentages? And I said. <laughs> LiveOps could not help it because LiveOps ruins the game as much as it adds it adds value to it because it creates interference, it creates friction, um, and uh, you know it not it's not necessarily true because it's definitely adding value. Otherwise, well, what are we here for? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the end of the day, you know, like these um, the, the core gameplay need to be strong enough. So then Sorry. you need to ask yourself. What is the best way to really gauge that the core player is where I, the core gameplay is really where I believe it could be and it should be. Um, So we talked about like looking at app store reviews, which is one aspect, but very similarly to customer support, you probably get it in in a maybe 10% of the amount of (laughs) comments that you might get would end up being there. As we know it, most of the games that are launched today already have more sophisticated ranking mechanisms, rating mechanisms inside them that only pick the good stuff. <laughs> Some companies would look at whatever is, is um, whatever comes to customer support out of the, the bad reviews, but it's not enough. So we do need to do this uh, a good diagnosis of, of really what's going on in the game. And usually I like splitting it into different parts. First of all, I would look at the, at the first time user experience. And, you know, ultimately everybody in the industry is trying to optimize it. And some companies spend months month trying to optimize FTE. And then at the end of the day, they, their D30 might not be that good. Um, FTUE is great, but it's not going to make make or break your game right the game needs to be good enough and sustainable in the long term otherwise it's going to be another hyper casual game okay fte could make stuff easier could make stuff more intuitive but it's not going to create long-term engagement in the game necessarily if the content is not there if it's not interesting enough um and then looking at this as, as really one point but then in parallel trying to think of how do you mitigate any kind of risk or problem that might arise in the future. So the second part will be saying, once I defined where my FTOE ends, what happens to my players from that moment, including what are the main milestones that I have? For example, if, if there is some, let's call it IAP wall in the game that forces players to choose if they want to become players or not, Try to distinguish it out and trying to see what is really um, the right place to put it in and how much does it actually affect retention? Because at the end of the day, you do need to have this thing happening sometimes to understand how your game is going to perform. Unless you believe that people will just, you know, so, uh, I, I wouldn't mention names, but sometimes, sometime someone told me, yeah, you know, like I count on my players to pay in five or six months, it's going to be okay. Yeah. The problem is that then until five months from launch, you don't know that you have a future problem in your game. <laughs> so I think that it's very important to really introduce these blocks, um, these blocking points into this kind of testing and optimization phase as, as soon as possible. Okay? When you add ads into the game, you know that there's going to be some bad effect on it. And it could be that you added the ads once you perfected your FTUE and once you perfected whatever comes after. But then it yeah. might affect your FTUE because you presented ads. Yeah. And it's really important to look at it in a holistic way. And I think that this is usually where we're seen because today, traditionally, we're trying to stabilize retention and then say, let's just ads on top of it. And with the bigger the complexity in the game, the harder it is to do this the integration and also to gain the trust and the actual um, engagement of the players in the game. And then maybe the last point is how do we manage to make people stay and pay, right? Because it's not only a matter of making you pay once, it's also about how do we make you pay in a repetitive basis. Yeah. and This is usually something that in the beginning you say, it's not a problem that I have. But what I always say is that you need to have a strategy to deal with it um, considering whatever might arise in the future. So you need to have different strategies to deal with any sort of problem that you might have in the game in the future. So you'd be able to deal with it and know how you're going to do this instead of going all the way back and try to solve it from the source because then it would take you much more time. So if you have a conversion issue in the game or a user issue in the game, you already know what could be the potential kill.
1: Yeah. No, that's really good. Okay. Final question related to this, just because I know so many gaming companies are struggling with like new games where they soft launch a game and the metrics just aren't, you know, to where they want them to be. Um, so, you know, let's assume that we've done these things. We've figured out a problem. We've tried a few things. At what point does it make sense to just kill a game as, we're probably never going to get to where we need to be able to, you know, scale this thing. Is it, hey, if I if you put out two updates and you spent two months doing things and you've like gone down, you, you've potentially solved those problems and metrics still aren't moving, like is that the point to so do it? You know, not all of us are supercell and can just you know completely redo our meta, you know, three or four times over, you know, two or three years. Um, you know, what is a, a reasonable time frame or? or do you have any sort of mechanic of like when it makes sense to at least seriously consider? Do we kill this thing? Fair. You
0: know what? I had the exact same discussion yesterday, and I think uh, I think that the answer again is it depends. So the bigger the company, obviously, the more patience you might have around how how much you want to get uh, invested in it, uh, both emotionally and financially. Um, you know, uh, I I walked in, I walked with and in some companies that ended up saying, this is the product that I want to have. I believe that it's going to make it. And we just walk until either the company dies or the game succeeds. And it's okay as an approach, you know, it's the very like entrepreneurial approach. Um, Some companies like Playtica um, decided to go and acquire other games because they realized that and maybe, you know, maybe I'm talking rubbish here, but uh, it's very evident that most of the games are games that are coming from acquisition and not necessarily fruit of their own, um, like creativity and innovation.
1: It's it's working for them though.
0: <laughs> exactly. And, it, and it's working and it's not a bad thing. Okay. Because not every company is good in doing everything from A to Z and it's okay to admit it. And it's also okay to know that you have some power to, uh, like a creative power to come up with something from scratch, but you don't have any operational capability. And I think that very few companies actually master everything end to end. And this is where you know that you can invest in something and have a high likelihood of success. Again, no guarantees really. But um, it's also okay to say, this is as far as I can get this game maybe I need someone else to help me. And we do see some examples around the industry of companies that, that pair together or the team together in order to, to really deliver a product. And this is also a good strategy. So there's, there's sometimes a middle, it's not only let's kill it or uh, let's uh, let's die on the way. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like come up with a formula saying, how much time did I spend in developing it and how much time do I need to spend in testing it to prove that I was wrong? Um, I honestly don't know because I think that the examples really vary between companies. I would say that testing a product less than three months is a shame Um, because of a few reasons. Uh, First of all, our industry is very volatile. Like Everybody knows that Some months are stronger than others from any different perspective. Whatever Apple did to our industry in the past Mm -hmm. year uh, kind of skewed everything around it. So there are a lot of external factors that affect how do we judge performance. Uh, And in the same way, there are also a lot of internal considerations. So I would say invest as much time as you think that is proper as long as you believe that you can really make it move. But if you made two or three iterations that nothing moved and you realize that you are not learning anything anymore, maybe you should reconsider it. And this is a factor of how high your CPI is.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really good. Yeah. You, you actually made me think of, uh, so there's a, a book by Jim Collins, uh, Beyond Entrepreneurship. So there, that was like his first book, but the, the new one's 2.0. And there was a quote in there where he was talking through, um, how Different business leaders have uh, kind of sustained for the long term, and so they look at companies um, that have, for like the last 15 years of when they wrote the book, have outperformed their industries, com- you know, co- comparison companies, et cetera. Um, and how did they do that? And one of the things that they came down to was this idea of uh, decision making and how fast you go, and and they generally found that the companies in the list could move fast, but they always tended to just move only as fast as they needed to. Um, and so he, he kind of said, they take as much time as it takes without increasing their risk profile. Um, so one CEO actually was diagnosed with cancer. And rather than And this is more of a personal example, but it, it, you know, embodies the way, his way of thinking. And rather than just taking his first doctor's opinion and just doing what the doctor said, he kind of took a look and said, well, you know, if I don't do anything for days or for weeks, is it really going to change my risk profile? And the answer is no. Now, if I don't do something for months, it could get a lot worse and probably in there. So what he did is rather than just taking that first doctors, he just like poured himself into research about the cancer and the treatments and how to handle it. And it turns out that there's, there was like two or three different factions among doctors that had very differing opinions on how they should handle this. And ultimately he put together his own plan that kind of utilized a little bit of both um, this like third wing of, Uh, (laughs) folks that thought it it might be this like dual factor, actually did it. And he ultimately beat cancer. Uh, Now, not to say that one or the other wouldn't have done that, but he took his time to really like analyze and figure out what is the right thing to do. And as you were just talking, I was like, that risk profile almost really makes sense. And so, you know, if you're a company like Supercell, taking a few more months of iteration, or maybe even a couple of years, isn't really going to increase my risk profile as I iterate on Brawl Stars here because I have the resources to do so. Now, if I'm a fledgling startup that has 12 months of runway, um, you know, maybe three months is all I get per game idea. And I basically got like four shots to show something is gonna have enough traction so that I can get my next round of funding. Um, and so I don't have that luxury of time. Um, and if I take more than the three months, then that increases my risk profile unless I'm, you know, very confident on it, because now I might only have three shots on the goal for that year or whatnot. Um, but do you think that's a good way to kind of approach it as well?
0: Yeah, yeah, in, in a way. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I don't want to hear uh, like slap on uh, every uh, slap to every entrepreneur that might have a dream <laughs> of making a, a complex game and not push everybody to do hyper casual because the iteration like this is fast. Uh, But I think that it's important to also not get emotionally attached to a product and and really start seeing, uh, like, to me, this risk profile is not only external influences like funding or stuff like this, but sometimes it's also how the market changes. And for example, if we take the example from before, if my CPI starts increasing in a way that I cannot control it, maybe it's time to shift if I cannot make it Mm. better. Um, And and it's really important to be really very aware to all of these small parameters because at the end of the day, they threaten your testing and you don't want to risk your testing by just lower the amount of installs that you bring because it's not solving the problem. It's just emphasizing it. And um, you know, in Voodoo, uh, we encountered oftentimes the problem of other companies taking products that we were working on and maybe, manage to make them more successful than, than we did mm. because you know in hyper casual everybody takes stuff or take influence from everybody nothing is vetoed really and sometimes you see a product that is a carbon copy of the exact same game that you created and somebody made it more successful um, and this is where you should stop and learn and say what did you do wrong or why why they did well And sometimes it's not enough to just say they were lucky, but it's sometimes really the case. Sometimes it's all about timing. Yeah,
1: no, that's, that's really awesome. Cool. Well, I I know we're about out of time here, but I do have one more question because we are on the Mastering Retention podcast, of course. And that is, uh, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to help increase retention? You know, how do you get players to stick around for longer?
0: Good one. Um, so, So, Maybe let's go into a practical example, and it's an example that I'm really proud of. Um, so back in WSOP, WSOP is, is a huge brand, esports brand, um, super recognizable North America, even globally. Back in my time in, in WSOP, we surpassed Zynga um, in, in performance, and at the end of the day, players who come and play WSOP already know how to play poker, because WSOP doesn't have any FTUE that really. or tutorial that explains to you how to play poker. The assumption is that you really need to know how to play poker. And yet the brand power is sufficient enough to draw uh, enough players on a daily basis to to really sustain this game for for a while. And over there, we had this question that how do we deal with diminishing retention over time? Because it's just uh, an impossible outcome to have. And what we found was that actually going back to the poker game and to just try to give a different take on it ultimately solved the problem. So I'm not going to give you the magic formula of how to create a system, a live op system that is going to create, to bring the retention. But I would say what we did there. So ultimately we created the game there is some kind of a take on Texas Holden. And it's a mini game called Daily Blitz. And Daily Blitz, uh, of, of course, you can understand that it's, it's a daily feature and ultimately it's a daily engagement feature. So it's a small, let's call it, it's a poker mini game that allows you to play on it every day. And the only way to access is to, to access it and to get better is to come to the game every day. What we did there was that we took this core expertise of playing Texas Hold'em. that the assumption is that all of the players already have it and love it, because this is why they came into the game. Given it a small twist and say, ultimately there are two pairs of cards and you can see the cards, the five whole uh, cards. And at the end of the day, you just need to click on the hand combination that is the best hand combination. The twist in the plot is that you have 15 seconds to reach as to click on as many hands as you can. And ultimately the premise is to win a jackpot. The twist in the plot, the second twist in the plot is that every day that you come in actually gives you two more seconds to the pull that you have in order to reach the jackpot, up to the cap of 30. So what did we have here? We have a core game loop and a small twist on it that actually works very well, so we don't need to teach people how to engage with it. There's a skill element, meaning that you can actually train and become a better poker player by just coming into the game every day. And you are really playing on something that is valuable to you and that you feel that is connected very well to the game and doesn't obstruct your gameplay. And all of these created a very coherent retention mechanism. And it's one of the few features I believe that we actually saw affecting retention, like day one and day seven retention. And I think that this is a very interesting formula. So I I would advise whoever listens to go and check it out. Um, and, And it's a beautiful feature. And obviously you need to make sure that whenever you do something like this, it's visible enough in the game. So everybody would get exposed to it and then start playing with how do you optimize it. And uh, yeah, for those who wonder, some people actually manage to get to the jackpot, so it's definitely possible. And all it requires is to actually train.
1: Awesome. Well, that's so much awesomeness. Cool. Uh, Ido, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, if folks do you have any, you know, follow-up questions after this, is there a good way to get in contact with you?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, so uh, feel free to reach me, Don Na'im. And um, yeah, I'll. I'm usually answering everything that I'm getting.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Well, cool. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure.